Welcome back to CFO Weekly, where we're talking with financial leaders about how to build efficiency in their teams, create time for strategy, and ultimately get results with your host, Megan Weiss. Let's jump right in. Today, my guest is Grant Fitz. Grant is the Chief Financial Officer for Electronics for Imaging, EFI, headquartered in Fremont, California. EFI was purchased by Cirrus Capital in July 2019, and shortly after, Grant was brought in to significantly improve EFI's financial performance and to prepare the company for an exit strategy in the future. Grant oversees the financial and information technology operations for EFI and supports the development of sound business strategies, strong internal controls, financial discipline, and integrity. He has also been instrumental in restructuring the company due to the COVID-19 crisis which has resulted in both revenue and profit growth. Prior to EFI, Grant was the CFO for Velasquez Communications Incorporated, a privately owned $2 billion technology-driven media company. During his time at Velasquez, Fitz was able to create enterprise value by growing the business in key segments with over 14 acquisitions, as well as through organic growth efforts, leveraging data and analytics to create high-return integrated digital and print offers which also improved the overall cost-competitiveness of Velasquez. During this time, Grant was also a board member of Blink Charging, a public technology company. Before Velasquez, Grant was the chief financial officer of Xerox's $12.5 billion technology business and the president of Xerox Financial Services. He was named to this position and appointed a corporate vice president and officer of the Xerox Corporation in April 2013. While at Xerox, Grant led a comprehensive business turnaround, which drove over $850 million in efficiency savings and generated the highest profit levels and profit margins for Xerox in over the past 15 years. Prior to joining Xerox, Grant spent more than 20 years at General Motors, where he held multiple positions with increasing responsibility, including being the first chief risk officer at GM, supporting GM CEO and senior leadership team with a focus to create a competitive advantage through mitigating the company's key risks. Grant was also the chief financial officer of GM Powertrain Europe, where he led the finance operations for a $5 billion company with 9,500 employees, seven manufacturing plants, three joint ventures, and five engineering centers. Grant also worked as the general director of General Motors' internal audit team, where he led the internal audit operations for GM's global automotive operations. He held various other leadership roles in GM in both Europe and the United States, including being the finance lead for the GM Fiat Alliance, which generated over $1 billion of synergies. Grant received a Bachelor's of Science in Industrial and Operations Engineering from the University of Michigan and a Master's of Business Administration from the Cranert School of Management at Purdue University. Grant, thank you so much for joining me on today's episode. Well, thank you, Megan. It's a pleasure to be here on an early Monday morning. (laughs) Today, we're going to be discussing your career journey and the insights you've gathered along the way, specifically regarding the role of a CFO and a bit about the importance of diversity in leadership. And I'm really looking forward to hearing from you today and, and learning about your story. So let's get started. Okay, great. So as always, let's start with you and your career journey and and how it is that you ended up where you are right now. Okay, sounds good. Um, It's an interesting path because uh, to be open, I never planned on being in finance. Um, I originally started out as a 
engineer working in General Motors and, you know, really was loving the work that I was doing there. Um, I was working in manufacturing at the time. But GM had a, um, a really great program at the time that was uh, a fellowship program. And so they ended up um, sending me for my master's uh, um, as part of my career development. And through that, I just fell in love with finance um, with the, through the MBA program. And um, I, as a result, I came back uh, to GM after getting my MBA and uh, asked to, uh, to go into finance. And they were really gracious about it and uh, got me into finance, uh, working in a uh, as a plant controller of all things in Tonawanda, New York, um, and that's where it all started. And from there, I just uh, moved forward and just had a you know I've had a great career working in many different industries and for many great leaders and uh, companies uh, uh, throughout that time. Yeah, I hear. Um, obviously, I, I talking to CFOs all the time, but there's so many of them these days that actually came from an engineering background. So it's always interesting to me. How how do you feel like that background? maybe makes you a better CFO? You know, it's it's funny because um, the things I learned uh, in two places, one is just the engineering discipline of problem solving and dealing with issues and doing it in a very, you know, uh, straightforward manner, disciplined manner. It, it applies to any part of the business. And it's just been so key with that. Um, and the other piece was, is, although it maybe wasn't as necessarily manufacturer uh, engineering, but working in a manufacturing environment, um, you know, very young in my career, very early in my career, um, in a heavy, heavily unionized environment, it was just a great experience because it really taught me about how do you work with people at all levels? How do you, you know, ensure that um, uh, you're motivating uh, individuals and we're all working towards the same goals? Um, that was just something that uh, has stayed with me ever since. And I often find that the things that I do today are no different than when I was starting out early in my career. The, the problems are just a little bit bigger, but the same process follows it. And uh, a lot of the things that I do really haven't changed in terms of the approach because they're just tried and true methods that uh, that work. And as you look back on your career, um, are there turning points throughout your career that you can point to as like, yeah, this is, this is like really what, what made me who I am today? Yeah, no, I, uh, um, great question. I mean, there are a lot of turning points. I would say that if you were to look at what I originally, you know, plotted out um, many years ago in terms of what I wanted to do in finance and my career uh, progression, it would look completely different than what I actually have ended up doing in my career. But probably one of the defining moments for me was um, when I uh, had an opportunity to go over to uh, to work in Europe um, and really had my first CFO job for a, a small company over there. And I ended up uh, living in Europe for about 10 years. Um, but during that time, it was the first time that you could really start to see that the decisions that you make and the things that you're plotting for the strategy of the company and the business going forward, you can start to see those really coming through. And that was a, a key defining moment for me on just recognizing how exciting it can be to be in finance and help to drive the business and really partner with the business. And throughout your career, you served with some or you served under some very strong female leaders. So first, tell us what that was like. And second, I'd love to know how that shaped your own leadership style. Sure. I, um, you know, it's probably... It is interesting. I don't know if it was just, you know, by by chance or uh, 
you know, how it's, it's happened to work. But um, I've worked for some really strong um, uh, female leaders in my career, as you mentioned. You know, one was um, certainly Ursula Burns, uh, who was the uh, first um, uh, African-American uh, CEO of a major Fortune 500 company. Um, I also had a chance to work with um, Mary Barra, who is now the, the CEO of, uh, of General Motors, um, and also uh, had a you know a great opportunity to work with um, Kathy Michaels, who was my uh, boss when she was the CFO at uh, at Xerox. And I think the the thing that stands out to me on that is is that um, because of that exposure, I never really thought of them as um, female leaders, if I could say that. It might sound a little bit strange. But certainly they were, you know, they were very strong female leaders, but you really started to view them as just very strong leaders. And just um, having that opportunity to work with, um, you know, three individuals of that caliber was something really, uh, you know, really important in my life um, as, I, as I looked at my career development. And the other piece that was interesting is, is um, one of those leaders um, uh, actually had uh, uh, one of their, their children was um, uh, on the same uh, um, soccer team as my son uh, growing up, and so I would see that person, uh, you know, at the the sidelines uh, every you know every Saturday, every game during the week, um, and I just really learned, you know, somebody who's one of the most powerful business um, leaders in the world, um, you know, was taking the time out to really find that balance with their family and to do the things that uh, that they need to do with their family. I just thought that was uh, so encouraging to see that and just to, to recognize that. Uh, you know, it is about uh, having the right balance. And just because you might be strong in business or do well in business, you know, that's not necessarily always what defines you as uh, being successful in life. And how do you feel like the experience has shaped your own leadership style? You know, it's it's probably been um, uh, more interesting in terms of just thinking about it from a diversity standpoint of really learning about uh, uh, looking at different points of view and recognizing that, people's backgrounds brings a different uh, opportunity to look at problems differently or to look at uh, issues differently. And the fact that, um, you know, I've had an opportunity to have more uh, interactions with some um, uh, female leadership has probably shaped me to be more receptive to thinking about um, ways that uh, that people might approach uh, the business differently. And I think part of that is also the opportunity that I had um, to uh, to work as well in Europe for ten years, and uh, you know, learning that just the you know the typical way of doing things that I might have uh, learned you know through growing up in the U.S. didn't always work you know the same way as when uh, when I lived overseas. And um, I think all those you know accumulation of all those different experiences have really just opened my eyes. That uh, I, I get amazed that no matter how many times I go into meetings thinking I have the right answer, coming out just humbled by the fact that it's not the right answer, that somebody had a much better idea in a much better way of thinking about things and just uh, recognizing that, uh, you know, there are people collectively can come up with some, you know, some great solutions to things. It's just been, you know, it's been probably the best experience for me. Yeah, it's amazing to me that you've been able or that you've had an opportunity to work under three such strong leaders. I mean, most people will never get an opportunity to work under one. So it's right. interesting to hear how that yeah, changed I, your I, career. No, it is. And, and to be very balanced here, I've had some really <laughs> successful uh, male leaders as well, too. And, you know, probably the, you know, one of the bigger ones um, who's been a great mentor is just uh, 
Luca Maestri, who's now the, the CFO of, um, of Apple. And, and so, um, yeah, so all those people, uh, you know, just really help to shape uh, who you are. And, and ideally, you know, if you do things well, you, you help to pass on the, the same thing to others that, uh, that are earlier in their, their careers as you work with them. Yeah, it sounds like diversity has been or has played a big part in your career. Without so, question, definitely. Let's talk about your current organization, EFI. What is it that, that they do? So Electronics for Imaging is basically a technology company that um, uh, is privately held. It's owned by Cirrus Capital, which is just a fantastic uh, private equity company to work with who you know, is all about creating value. But um, EFI has been a leader in the uh, industrial print uh, industry um, and really helping to transform it and bring it forward for digital printing. And so essentially you can think of it as, um, you know, when you go uh, and receive something in the mail, you know, or through a, a delivery, a, a package box that might have all different types of colors, it may even be personalized uh, with your name on it. We're the company that makes the printers that can can produce those vibrant images and really help to bring out things that um, can uplift brands and help to drive better ROI for uh, for the the, uh, the customers that uh, that need those boxes to help um, uh, sell their products. And so that's one of the key things we do. We also make these you know printers that um, these big signs that you would see at stadiums, things of that nature. Um, you know, we're, we're the ones that provide those printers. And even in the textile industry, the, uh, the just the color that comes through on your textiles and your, your fabrics, you know, we do that. Um, building materials with uh, all the, te- the uh, uh, colorful floors and, and uh, tiles now, they're all printed on equipment that we manufacture. And then um, we certainly provide, we had a software company that um, we've recently sold that uh, helped to support the, uh, the uh, improved efficiencies with uh, uh, the printing process and uh, managing uh, uh, print operations. And we also have a company uh, at our headquarters in uh, Fremont, California, that uh, basically does, um, uh, it's called Fiery, that does a lot of the, the color management for some of the big uh, OEM copier companies um, that are out there that uh, that you use in your office and uh, you know in uh, other print shops around the world. So sounds like you guys are doing some pretty cool stuff. It's it's been fun. I, I love technology, and it goes back to being an engineer. And so that's really why I, I uh, one of the big reasons why I joined is because they're very much um, a technology leader and you know driven by technology. So and how long ago did you join EFI? It's been probably uh, about uh, two and a half years now. So Okay, um, so right at the start of the pandemic. It was very interesting, exactly. (laughs) And what are your proudest achievements since joining? You know, it's been a whirlwind uh, since I joined EFI um, because of two things. When you, you know, typically get bought by a a private equity company, they have a, you know, business uh, plan that they want to implement. And... um, it typically drives a lot of transformation, um, but the nice thing is, is it's transformation. You know, for EFI, it was transformation on things that uh, really needed to be done to help um, you know drive the business forward to be more competitive, but also to really drive the innovation development cycle um, much stronger as well too. And so, I spent the first you know several months working on that, and uh, you know really had a good uh, good foundation with the the. With the uh, the whole transformation uh, plans that we were doing. And then COVID hit and suddenly, you know, just like that overnight, uh, your revenue drops 
you know, 30% and you're trying to figure out what do we do. And uh, it was just, uh, it was so great to see the team at EFI come together during that situation. And, um, you know, really what I would say is, um, you know, weathered the storm, we've heard that term many times uh, uh, in the press, but uh, really get through the, the, the issues so that we basically didn't miss a beat when it came to, you know, profitability in spite of lower revenues, uh, really drove, continued to drive profit growth. But more importantly, we made a conscious decision to double down on engineering investments so that we were really ready when the uh, pandemic started to break, that we would have some new products coming out that could just really help to lead the, um, the industry. And that's what's happened now because, uh, you know, we're, we've been introducing new products um, as we've gone forward. And it's really just uh, hit the right uh, cadence for the business to, to help continue what EFI has been known for for a long time, which is just innovation and driving uh, new uh, new business, uh, you know, uh, in the industry that wasn't there before. And you started your career with big public companies, and today you're working for a private equity backed company. So, what was that transition like? Um, you know, it's interesting. I uh, I had always wanted to work in private equity, at least with one assignment in my career, and I uh, I did that because I just. You know, I spent a lot of time, as you mentioned, in big public companies um, and spent uh, a great deal of time, you know, just understanding that whole process and, and uh, what it takes and, and how do you, you know, how do you drive the business forward. But I always had felt that there was a fundamental, you know, uh, some fundamental problems with the public company approach in that one was, you know, speed to, to be able to make decisions and to move forward and to, to not be focused as much on just the quarterly results. And so I thought it would be always interesting to just work in a privately held company where you didn't have necessarily all those constraints on you on uh, quarterly earnings and, and um, just the whole process of, um, uh, of uh, a model that might be burdened a little bit in terms of uh, slowing down uh, decisions. And so uh, so I did it. And uh, you know I would say that it's been really quite great because um, when you have a strong partner, who's really focused on you know, generating value, you can make decisions very quickly and you can move and really be um, much more nimble uh, in the marketplace and uh, you know, be able to, to address issues when they come up. And so, so I've enjoyed that you know, quite a bit, um, but uh, they're both, you know, both of them have their issues in terms of the business model. I mean, there are pluses and minuses and I don't think one's better than the other. But I wanted to experience both, and so so I've done that, and uh, you know, been really Great. pleasantly, you know, surprised with um, uh, just uh, uh, how smooth the transition has gone. And do you have any advice for other CFOs who are possibly considering making that jump? Um, you know, I think in the end, it's all about what you want to do with uh, with yourself individually and, and with your career and your development. Um, you know, I would say that. Uh, uh, going into a public uh, uh, environment and then into a private uh, is probably a little bit easier than maybe going from private into public. So I think that, uh, um, you know, it just uh, my personal view is, is it probably uh, helps prepare you a little bit more uh, for the transition if you've had public experience first. But uh, in the end, I've always been a firm believer that your, you know, your gut is your best uh, instinct when it comes to these types of decisions. And uh, you just listen to what you really think is the right move. And um, from my standpoint, it's all about creating value. And what I get excited about is where can I create the most value? Where, where do I have the opportunity to create the most value? 
And whether it's public or private, it doesn't matter. I think it's more about what that next opportunity is and just, uh, you know, is it something that really excites you and you know that you can make a big difference. And you mentioned the speed at which you guys are putting out new products. A few months ago, you guys put out a game-changing digital printer for the packaging industry. So talk to me about kind of the process of putting out a new product and what CFOs should be considering before that launch. Sure. So this um, probably bends a little bit on uh, or relies a little bit on some of my background coming out of the auto industry because the auto, uh, you know, putting out a, a, a vehicle into the marketplace um, in the auto industry is extremely complex. I mean, there's, you can just think of all the thousands of parts that you have, all the safety issues, all the you know reliability, quality issues. And to do that flawlessly and to do it where you're talking about, you know, defects per million um, is really quite a, a quite an accomplishment. And so I think the, you know, from my standpoint, you have to be perfect at all phases of the you know product introduction. You have to have technology, obviously, it's probably the key issue on you know making sure that you're making the right investments in the right technology and that it's really going to be a game changer when you think about it um, in terms of the investments that you've made in the industry. Yeah, that's just, you know, part of, that's why you do that. But you have to be able to execute. And I don't think that sometimes uh, finance uh, uh, um, gets involved as much as they should on being able to help drive the business to execute better. And so having things like dashboards and tracking systems and, you know, uh, the right approach with, um, you know, with quality systems and development processes those are all the infrastructure that needs to be there. And what I often use the term industrial strength processes that really, you know, will stand the test of time and help, can help deliver projects on time and on budget and with the right technology. And so I think it's important to have that discipline um, and to be able to go to your engineering leader, or go to your technology leader and say, you know, where are you at in the development cycle and, you know, what's going on with this? And, uh, uh, making sure that they're doing their their things uh, up front so that when the product does launch, it's not going to have a problem. It's not going to be an issue where customers are going to say, great technology, but it doesn't work, so it really doesn't help me. You know, and so um, so it's that full cycle of, um, of having a really strong process, uh, not only with the technology development, but also with being able to launch it and then clearly go to market as a key piece on just the, 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 you know, the campaigns that you want to have, working with your marketing teams and your sales team on how they're going to really market this and go to market um, because in the end, it is uh, there to drive more revenue and you want to make sure that we're ready with the right approach to do that. I'm just curious, are you Six Sigma trained? Um, you know, I, I'm not technically Six Sigma trained, but early in my career, I worked um, very extensively in, in quality management at uh, General Motors and I had a chance to work with an individual by the name of Dr. Deming, who was uh, one of the founding, you know, fathers of the whole uh, quality movement, uh, um, literally helped the Japanese uh, uh, auto industry get to where it is today through, um, you know, through uh, his quality uh, approach in processes and systems. And uh, that was, that was a really, you know, you talk about a defining moment. It was uh, one of those things where to work with somebody of that caliber, you know, that uh, impact on the on the world, um, really was quite uh, quite astonishing, and uh, you know, it was very very educational for me, and I, I just learned a tremendous amount from him. Yeah, I'm sure. 
As someone with significant financial and operational experience, what's your best advice for CFOs who are new to the game? You know, I'm a very curious and uh, inquisitive person. Um, I love to, uh, you know, love to learn new things. And so I think that um, I view it as kind of a balance of a lot of different things. But first and foremost is just being, you know, very inquisitive and just asking questions and don't be afraid to ask questions that you might think, uh, you know, you don't know uh, or you should know the answer on, excuse me. And people are going to think, you know, why is he asking that question? I've just found so many times when I ask these questions that I think are so basic that you realize, you know, that the question is pretty fundamental in terms of where the, the organization is at on something and what they're doing and, and why are they doing it. And I think that uh, just having that, uh, that inquisitive nature is really important for a, for a successful CFO. With that being said, you know, having uh, a good balance of what I would call kind of the technical skills, certainly you need to have those, whether it's, uh, you know, accounting, finance, uh, uh, corporate finance capabilities, you know, having that is, is really important. But I would say the area of internal controls and financial reporting, um, you know, just recognizing that uh, that is so critical as a foundation um, is something that I think uh, a lot of new CFOs that haven't had a chance to maybe work as an external auditor or to work in internal audit, sometimes have blind spots and they don't realize um, that you need to have a real, you know, you need to spend time with your team periodically looking at account reconciliations and things like that. Just some very basic things to make sure that the organization is doing the right thing and are working on the right um, right areas. And so, so it's that balance of, of being strategic, but also being very operationally and, and uh, execution focused that I think you need to develop and, and find out what works for you because everybody's different. But uh, those are things that I, you know, I just try to make sure I'm carving out time to work on, you know, in all these areas versus just focusing on one area and then having something else that uh, doesn't go right because uh, I wasn't paying attention to it. That's great advice. When you were at GM, you were their first chief risk officer. So tell me about that experience and and what went into the process of being the first and how did how did you shape that role starting from uh, ground zero? Yeah. That was a really interesting role. Um, so essentially, I had been um, uh, before General Motors went in, went through its bankruptcy, which was you know a learning experience in and of itself. Um, it was uh, you know I had a chance to work at um, uh, in the internal audit area and was running GM's automotive internal audit um, operations, and we started to do some audits that were maybe a little bit more business focused on things like. Um, you know, what are some of the big risks that could really impact General Motors? And, you know, what would happen if these things occur? And, you know, are we prepared? And there was, you know, uh, you know, there was just some some questioning marks on, you know, why are we doing that? And, and maybe some pushback along the way. Um, but then when these some of these big risks did occur, and essentially, you know, the company did go bankrupt, um, you know, people recognize that, uh, some of the leaders and so when we brought in, uh, when General Motors had a new uh, CEO, Dan Ackerman, uh, who came in um, uh, and you know, basically uh, was at a very strong risk management mindset, um, my name came up and uh, you know, he, he asked me to become the, the first chief risk officer uh, because of some of that earlier work and just the, the whole approach on, uh, on risk from a holistic standpoint. And so... Um, so it was very simple. Dan was a very direct individual, but he basically said, 
you know, the, we're in a boat and I want you to be able to tell me when the iceberg is, uh, um, you know, is, uh, is 10 miles out so that we can steer away and, and uh, you know, avoid it. And so he, he was a, uh, ex-Naval Academy, um, you know, veteran and, uh, you know, used a little bit more salty language, but you got the point pretty quickly. And so, you know, so we had a great opportunity to put down what I would say is a, um, uh, a blank sheet of paper of how we really wanted to approach risk. And so I, I used um, some outside consultants and some other experts, and we, you know, basically put in place an approach where we identified the key risks in the company, and we had, um, you know, uh, all of the business leaders were assigned some of those key risks to go work on mitigation and to start to deal with issues. And um, when it started to get, um, uh, you know, get some attention is when things like the uh, Japanese uh, earthquake and tsunami disaster that happened, uh, I'm going to guess probably it's about 15 years from now, it's showing my age a little bit. But, um, you know, the company had already exercised some disaster recovery things and it, it was in a well uh, position to really manage through that crisis or when there was a time that um, uh, gas prices suddenly shot up um, um, you know through a, a global crisis um, the company had already thought through what do we do in case uh, prices uh, rise again and you know what some of the marketing campaigns we want to do and things of that nature and so so I view risk management as being able to exercise the muscles that we may not normally use but when these things really do happen, and they won't always happen the way you think they'll happen, there'll be one or two at the same time that are a little bit different. You've already exercised, you've got that muscle memory as an organization to be able to react and to, to respond to it quickly. And it becomes a real competitive advantage because of the agility that it creates uh, versus just you know trying to wait and see what happened uh, uh, and are things gonna get better. And even at EFI, that was my, you know, one thing we picked up on the COVID crisis in early, um, you know, uh, December uh, uh, 2019, that we started to see that this was something that could be really big. And by um, March of 2020, you know, when the crisis really started to hit the U.S., we were already implementing actions that uh, uh, we could take to, to manage through that crisis and were fundamental in our ability to, to really uh, you know, do very well throughout the whole pandemic. Yeah, it sounds like that must have been an amazing learning experience. It really and was. It, and sometimes it was, had I not been an expert, not being an expert was actually kind of a, a benefit because it gave you a chance to think about things differently versus then just what maybe somebody who's been so focused in one area, um, you know, just brings a different thought process, which I've always thought is, uh, has been a little bit uh, interesting as well, too, so. And that's a great segue into the next question. So the world today is obviously very unpredictable. So what advice would you give to CFOs to improve their financial planning and analysis processes? Yeah, I think, um, so a couple of things that um, today is a really hard, uh, you know, hard time to predict on what's going to happen. Um, probably one of the most difficult times in terms of just um, so many mixed messages that are out there in terms of where the economy is going and, and what's happening. I think the majority of people would, you know, certainly say that things are probably moving, you know, towards uh, closer to a recession. Um, although uh, certainly I think the U.S. is still a little ways away from that. But uh, there's also a lot of, you know, really positive signs that are out there. You know, demand is really strong still. Um, just a lot of activity and, uh, you know, corporate earnings. We'll see how the QC results come in. But for the most part, corporate earnings have continued to stay very strong, which I think is a really good bellwether test as well, too, of where the, the economy is going. Um, and so, so 
when we get into this type of environment where it could be, uh, you could see things continue to, to do well in your industry, or it could really uh, you know, go south very quickly. I think it's important to have models and to have thought through different scenarios and really to be um, scenario based in terms of your planning process and to have, you know, this might be our, what we think is going to happen, but here's uh, what I would call, I often use the term, just the envelope of possibilities we could end up, you know, in a really severe, you know, economic situation in our industry, and this is what it would look like, and these are the things that we would need to do to to um, to work through that. Or we could end up in a, you know, a, a continued expansion opportunity that could really drive, um, you know, a great business growth for us as, uh, in our industry, and and how do we want to deal with that as well too? And so it's having that uh, in your pocket, um, you know, the scenarios. Um, I think it's important. And the other thing that I think is really key, um, you know, particularly, uh, I know uh, technology, there's a lot of things about automation and things of that nature within finance. But I think the modeling of, um, you know, having different models that can drive to where you see the business going is also important because no model that I've ever worked with has been right. It's always had its flaws. It's always had its issues. But when you have models that have been developed that might be coming from a couple of different perspectives, to me, it's always been interesting to really triangulate on why is this model telling me this and the other one's telling me that. It makes you start to think about the business and what's going on. And uh, it really fits in well with the scenarios uh, planning. And that's uh, that to me is, um, you know, is really critical is just to be ready for different scenarios because it is uh, such an uncertain time right now. Are there any tools or technologies that you're using for dashboarding or modeling? Um, just any tools or technologies that are helping to make your life easier? Yeah, so so a couple of things here, um, and I'm not by any means, uh, you know, that the uh, the poster child for CFO, you know, using the the best technologies and things like that. Um, but what I've learned in my career is, um, and I think it's really important today more than ever is making sure that you have some really strong data um, analytics type of, of, of capability within the company. So having some people that really understand the data sets and the databases and can manage through the data and make sure that it's uh, uh, the data is in a good spot. And you, know, you have kind of what I call the golden source of, of data that everybody relies on and you know one source of truth essentially. Uh, so we don't have multiple you know, pieces of data out there, but having that in place and having the capability to really manage through that data in the analytics, I think is just fundamental before you start to get into all the dashboarding and things of that nature. And so, um, so we've put in some, um, some capabilities that we didn't have before to, to work through our data, uh, brought in some real data experts on some things. And uh, we're starting to see the benefits now where we really have started to automate our dashboards with real-time data um, and just using that to help to start to make business decisions, you know, much faster and much uh, uh, more quickly. Um, you know, we do have the benefit of being on one um, ERP. So, you know, that's that's great within the company. It's the first time I've ever had that in my career. And so that's uh, that's been fantastic. And that really can help enable that. Um, but then, you know, with that, you know, we, we definitely, um, you know, are working on more areas for automation and opportunities within uh, finance, but within the business as well, too. And so that's the next area that we've really have started to look at is uh, picking processes, working on automation and leveraging that um, you know, within our finance team. And, and so that's uh, kind of the journey that we're on. Um, but uh, I would say, you know, there's so many good 
the tools out there right now to help support that, that it's uh, it's really something that, um, you know, it gets a little bit hard sometimes to select which is the best tool, but uh, talking to your peers and getting their insight on, you know, on what they're using and what works well for them, I think is a really key thing too for, for people that are starting this journey. And what advice do you have for CFOs looking to drive strategic value to grow revenue and margin? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's all starts again about my comment about being curious about the business. And um, you need to know your business and your industry. I mean, that's something that um, is really important. Um, you know, there's more and more, and it's grown over time as I've seen it, is that, um, you know, the CFO role has become the really effective CFOs are really ones that are true partners with the business. And, um, you know, in order to be a partner with the business, you really need to understand the business and know the business and learn about the business. And I think that um, when you start to get that value um, where you can really be at the table and be providing some good um, input on strategies and ideas, that's really when you become, you start to be very effective on, um, you know, how to helping to grow the revenue and uh, in margins. And, um, one of the areas that I think in general, um, you know, CFOs have not been as strong on is just the whole go-to-market and the, the sales organization and really driving, you know, the, um, uh, the understanding of how, how to go to market and, you know, understanding, you know, um, marketing campaigns and returns and, and where you want to make those investments. Um, you know, those are really some key areas that I think that you can make an impact right away with your business, um, you know, even, including even compensation systems for, you know, for sales organizations and start to grow, you know, grow revenue and, uh, and margin. Um, but it, it is about knowing the business. It's about knowing the product, knowing what technology you have and where your competition is so that you can, you can be ahead of them. And that's, uh, you know, that's it's just being a good business uh, savvy individual. And that, uh, you know, that's what uh, the CEOs are looking for as a partner, somebody that they can really help to have, um, you know, drive these things that, um, that can, uh, can create value. Yeah, your your answer and and many other answers that always reminds me of the show Undercover Boss, where yeah. the boss would go spend a day on the floor, like living a day in the life of the employees. Yeah, I I tell you, I, every job I've gone to, one of the first places I go is to uh, uh, is to the the, the R and D team, and uh, I remember when I went to to Xerox. Um, where I was the CFO, what's now the, the standalone Xerox company. Um, you know, one of the first places I went to was out uh, was to park in California, just to understand what technology is out there and what, what there is that uh, uh, can really be game changing in terms of the business. And, you know, I did the same thing at EFI. And uh, I just think getting that time, and it's not easy when you're starting out because you've got so many competing interests for learning about the business and the financials and, you know, heaven forbid, you got a quarterly earnings call and, you know, in a month or two weeks or a day, and you got to learn all the financials, you know, overnight. But um, if you don't carve out that time to do, you know, to learn about the business, uh, it's just going to, it's going to take, uh, take you a few steps longer to, to get to where you want to be as a, you know, as a, a true partner. And lastly, as a CFO, what's keeping you up at night right now? Um, well, we've probably already talked about it. I, the economy right now is just, uh, you know, it's really uh, uh, an issue. And uh, so much of it's driven by supply chain issues right now. So yeah. so supply chain is, um, uh, you know, is, is what's really keeping me up at night. And, uh, you know, working through that, uh, it'll be interesting to see 
um, you know, a few years from now, what how the models have changed with supply chain. Um, because it seems like every time we go through one of these supply chain shocks, everybody talks about, well, we need to, to, to do things differently and, you know, maybe do more dual sourcing and things of that nature. But then, you know, there's this lull of, uh, of several years and people kind of go back to the same habits. And, and you know, uh, now um, companies are facing the, the problems that, uh, that are there again. And, and I think that fundamentally, um, as CFOs, we need to be taking lessons from this and making sure that we're really thinking about um, how do we deal with these things, not you know when they're happening, but really preparing for them before they happen, so that we can, uh, you know, that we can uh, work through these much uh, much more easily than uh, maybe what other companies are dealing with. But uh, but supply chain is definitely you know front and center, and uh, hopefully we see things easing up at some point. But I don't think that's going to be going away anytime soon. I think we're going to be dealing with some issues, uh, you know, probably well through uh, through next year. Grant, thank you so much for being my guest today. Well, thank you as well too, Megan. It was a pleasure to talk with you and uh, hopefully uh, uh, this will provide some insight for some of my peers. And if anybody uh, you know, certainly has any questions, don't feel, don't be afraid to uh, reach out on LinkedIn. I'd be happy to, to connect with, uh, with any in the finance community to help them along this journey. Yeah, that's great. I've really enjoyed speaking with you and hearing about your experiences. It sounds like, you know, they, they've, uh, given you some wonderful insights. Without question. Thank you. To all of our listeners, please tune in next week. And until then, take care. If you're ready to boost efficiency and streamline your accounting processes at significant cost savings, it's time to talk with Personif. Their people-powered solutions have transformed the delivery of back office tasks and general accounting functions for decades, partnering with clients to provide everything from accounts payable to payroll services. See what Personif can do for you by visiting personif.com. You've been listening to CFO Weekly presented by Personif. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to hear all of our episodes. Want to learn more? Check out personif.com. Thanks for listening.